keep those California Indians down. Good evening, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves County Radio. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. On tonight's show, a one-hour exclusive special with an update on the impact of the Montecito Santa Barbara mudslides and its impact on the Chumash peoples. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves County Radio. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone food. For the hour on today's show on American Indian Airwaves, we bring you this exclusive interview with Marcus Lopez Sr., a member of the Barbarino Band of the Chumash Nation in California. He's also co-host and executive producer of American Indian Airwaves. The Lopez family was directly impacted by the recent Montecito mudslides in Montecito, Santa Barbara, California. The Lopez family has lived on their family's land since the late 1800s, and Marcus Lopez Sr. is still living there at ground zero without electricity, heat, and running water. He provides us an exclusive interview on how the Montecito mudslides directly impacted him, his family's land, and the recent communities. This is Marcus Lopez Sr. on how the recent Thomas fires in the recent rains caused the Montecito mudslides and impacted him, his family, and the land. Hello, Larry. Uh, how are you doing? We're not doing too good over here, the community of Montecito. Uh, I want to give, first of all, my condolences and uh, heart-out grief to the families that lost their lives and their loved ones. Um, the fire, the Thomas fire, the start of Ventura, and reached over here, ended up in Montecito in the backcountry, and after it was terminated here in Montecito, a week and a half later, we have massive rains in which the result of that created a massive flood here in the hillsides of Montecito and the Montecito Hills, and um, the result of that has been the massive 26-foot swell of mud and debris down in the canyons, and particularly Montecito Creek, which we live right next to, uh, down and wiped out many homes. And I think of one business down further southeast of us. The day that it occurred, that 3, 3.30 in the morning, we got up, my son woke me up, he heard the rumble, we escaped to the, my brother, my sister, myself, and my son escaped the houses as the floodwaters came rushing down the driveway. And then in turn, we stood in the rain with the CHP officer for about three to four hours because of the fact that all the roads were blocked out of Montecito. The creeks that are dry most of the year, except for the Montecito Creek, overflowed 
But the Montecito Creek, it took the its epic center, took the main blow. Uh, and I know the Torrey Canyon, which is east of us, about a couple miles away, took its toll too. A lot of bridges are out, and um, so that night we waited three or four hours till sunrise. Went back to the driveway through the mud. It surrounded the houses, but our houses are intact and um, about two feet uh, areas of foot and a half and other areas three inches around the houses. The, my son's house, they clipped it, and my um, sister's house, uh, we had the, the compound, which are four houses, was as part of the Lopez estate from the, um, what we call the old Spanish town. The, and more on that later, Larry. But you have just to north, adjacent to the property, is a fire, the county Montecito Fire Department, three dwellings, homes for families. One got eliminated, and the two uh, were, one of them was a store, and the other one, I don't know what conditions it's in, right next door to us. But it slammed my sister's uh, house off the foundation into the Martinez's home, which is my warehouse. And, um, and it deflected, and then it finally went down the creek. Across the creek, my grandfather built his house, and my brother is the last 40 years rebuilding his house. And his trailer and his equipment, he was a master mechanic uh, for 50 years, lost everything. And the community next south of him, southwest of him, and the poor families that I believe were still there, about half a dozen homes lost all that was inside. All the homes are gone. And the families, many think, were still there when the flood came. Most of them, I believe, were um, Mexican families. And so we're saddened about that. And you can, um, uh, there were some teenagers and some, um, and some children that was lost as well as the adults. And then I know there's a couple uh, that was lost, an elderly man and his wife that was there. This area, Larry, uh, got decimated. I would say that, and this is why I appreciate your interviewing me, Larry, a lot of the news media, whether it be Fox or whether it be ABC, NBC, Tercer Mundo, or radio, NPR radio, they wanted to see devastation. But in this old Spanish town, as they call it, is where the soldados and the Chumash communities built their community away from Santa Barbara. This is the, where they were going to put the mission. This is where they're going to start Santa Barbara. But they, it was, it was as they say, too many bears and 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 wild Indians. And so they couldn't do that. So, but yet when the so it was the Spanish land grants, they um, they created a little community in Montecito, and Montecito is little bosque or little forest in Spanish. So this is the forest area, unlike Santa Barbara, which is semi-desert sort of like, because when you describe the whole Santa Barbara area and the mountains, the mountains are south, um, they run east and west, unlike any other portions of California, Larry. And because of that, the downwinders or the Santa Ana conditions are ripe for many of the fires. So going back 
to uh, we face the south of it is um, and the in the west of us is Santa Barbara, six miles away. And uh, finally they put the mission, finally put the Presidio, and they finally put the Indian villages, uh, the, um, uh, the, um, the labor force around the mission, the slave labor force. And then within that, though, uh, years later, they have these little pockets of community up and down California, little pockets of enclaves of Chumash communities. Um, excuse me, native communities, as well as it's no different than in Santa Barbara. So the native communities and the soldados married into each other, and it created a community here within Old Spanish Town where they spoke. The reason why they called it Old Spanish Town is because everybody spoke Spanish, some English, and some Smoish, which is uh, Chumash language. So families evolved, and, and during that time, um, as my father explained to me, 1917 was a massive flood that took many of the houses like they did today. Now, obviously, there, there were the still wooden structures that we live in today, but yet some, all the houses that the flood covered then created the same path, mm. exactly the same path, through the canyon, through the creek, on the banks, down Hot Springs, down Olive Mill, and to the ocean. And uh, and they lost a lot also in 1917. Fast forward to 2018, this was a perfect storm, if you will. The swells, like, uh, like I said before, were at least 26 feet high from the base from the base of the creek to where the distraction, massive distraction, and debris. Not only mud and ash. The mud is. The texture of the mud, Larry, is ash and dirt. And you can smell the smoke in the dirt itself. Mm. It's ash. And uh, also within the debris is house remains. We didn't, uh, luckily, we didn't have any found any human remains, but they did down, down south of us. And uh, they're still looking for those remains. And I think 50 lives are still unaccounted for, and many other lives, 17, have, have passed before us, which is, which is a calamity in itself. But yet the, the debris of house, the debris of fiberglass, the debris of, of, of chemicals is unknown, and um, much lumber intertwined with frames of houses, rooftops, and garbage, uh, plastic bottles, people's garbage, etc. that um, that remains in the mud at this present time. The, the course of the flood from the East Valley Creek to south, it went down with, with the energy. The energy was so massive, Larry, that it wiped out half of old Spanish town. And uh, we are adjacent to it. Two houses from the old Spanish town, three actually, maintain its structural uh, integrity. But the other two houses and across the creek where the many of the small bungalows, if you will, existed was wiped out. That was my brother's house and some uh, houses south of his. Now, because of the elimination of this old Spanish town, there's a couple issues which I will get to later. 
but the path of the flood went down the same path of 1917. And those houses that were built in those areas should have known this, but at the same time, they built them just like a mansion just north of us. Uh, Six million to, I don't know what, they built it and, and with a creek basin. I told them not to build it there. They insisted, and it's flooded, and I really don't want the condition whether it's salvable or not. So many of the homes, which are very, very expensive homes, uh, uh, got destroyed, and their lives and their children's are missing because of the um, the nature of certain non-intelligent building of where the homes were built. With that same breath, Larry, the this perfect storm of the flood could not be predicted. The um, probability of it being the massive amount of debris, the dirt, the mud, the ash, accumulated with an inch and a half to five inches, concentrated within the foothills of Montecito, created this perfect storm and this perfect flood. And within that, it went all the way south, Horn Hot Springs, jumped the bridge, went down Olive Mill, eliminated many of the houses that are on the west side, went down all the way to Jamison and Oak Coast Highway, which is Oak Coast Highway, and most of the businesses down there, owned by the, under the jurisdiction of the city of Santa Barbara, the most of the east eastern part where the Montecito Inn is, was created a havoc situation, and I've been told that it is non-inhabitable at this point in time. And some of the businesses got clipped, but most of the businesses were saved because they're mostly going the westerly direction. Upon the flood, the creek goes underneath the freeway. It, it was so massive, the flood ignored where the creek was supposed to go, and then in turn went where it normally went, and then flooded the highway, which is, I would say, 12, maybe I don't know, 14 feet lower than the surface of the frontage road where you pass, overpass, and that all got flooded, and it looked like a massive, massive uh, pool of debris, of cars, of homes, and possibly of bodies, and I really don't know, and and uh, that's, um, that's problematic. There's been reports of also of, of this debris being dumped in Goleta and other parts, and uh, they're trying to clear the freeway. But also, I heard that the the bridge and the over ramp that goes over 101 is structurally um, can, uh, um, unsound, and the highway at this point, what I heard in radio and other sources, that uh, the highway is closed indefinitely. So that's another problem with the city of Santa Barbara and also for Montecito. Now, um, and then after the highway, it went down this natural course to the Biltmore and to where the creek normally goes underneath the highway or over the highway or underneath the highway. I, I haven't been down there yet into um, its um, path or towards the ocean and where it, um, it ended. So now we're talking about a six-mile, eight-mile 
eight miles or maybe ten miles trip that the flood went, maybe closer to six. But um, within, so that's the path, and so we witnessed the flood, and its the energy was worse, and the amount of energy of the flood was. I survived, we survived all the different fires, whether it be the T fire, whether it be the Zaka fire, whether it be the Coyote fire in 66, and all the different flooding that occurred. This has been the worst, and it mimics the 1917 fire, Larry. You're listening to an exclusive interview with Marcus Lopez Sr., a member of the Barbarino Band of the Chumash Nation, providing us an update with the impacts of the recent mudslides in the Montecito, Santa Barbara region. He and his family live at Ground Zero. And now back to the interview. You know, when I listened to you describe uh, the conditions up there, I was wondering... um, it it sounds like it's a almost a toxic cesspool if you take into consideration all the debris and all the waste and all the pollutants that are um, used in the manufacturing of homes and landscaping, treatment of people's lawns, agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is just um, you know awashed or mixed in with all of that mud and all that sediment that covers uh, Mother Earth. What about um, other infrastructural um, impacts such as natural gas lines that may adversely uh, compound the environmental health situation there? Have we heard anything about that? Well, interesting that you brought it up because that night um, as we escaped and went up the driveway uh, and escaped the flood and went on to East Valley Road, which is a higher land, um, about maybe 12 feet higher, so we weren't affected. We seen a glow to the east of us, and it was like another fire, and we thought it was a fire, or maybe the moon or lights, where we figure out it was a fire, a natural gas fire, up around the area of San Isidro Ranch area, a natural uh, gas pipe ruptured and ignited during that first night of the flood. And I and through a source of some gas workers, they said that possibly that um, that a boulders or boulders knocked out the creek bridge, and which created um, uh, this fire, which was pretty massive. It is out now, and one thing about it, unlike Puerto Rico, Larry, which I'm still thinking about those poor souls over there, the um, Edison Gas Company, Water Company, and I see even Cox running around. I've been reviewing the situation. They cut off our electricity. They first we had it, then it's off. They said in about a week and a half to two weeks, they're gonna um, get the electricity back. A lot of the families, like next door, there's some families still living there, so I don't know how, how they're doing. Some young kids and also an elderly woman, 96 years of age. The American Red Cross came in, see how we're doing, and um, we're hunkering down, Larry. <clears throat> and Well, first of all, the top, the, they seem to be reviewing the gas pipelines, and also the electrical lines, many lines that go across the creek were down. 
And so they had to shut that off. And also the water lines have to shut that off. They've been working on that. And but their main focus right now, it seems to me, Larry, has been um, not the effects of the environment, but mainly trying to find any lost individuals that around the flood area and down south of us. That speaking, saying that, the um, uh, many of the crews now are wearing high rubberized pants because people are realizing that this ash and the contents of the ground uh, is, uh, I will, it's presumed um, not good for the skin, if you will. So we wear leather boots and whatnot. And I told my son when he was over, my sons were over there when they were working, where they can get come in to go back to Santa Barbara. Mother, son lost lost the house because they clipped the bathroom that's open. He can't live there anymore. He found a place. Mother, son um, um, went went uh, with, with his mom. And there now, I said, take a good shower. And then, so we're just um, very cautious. And um, and the, they, we have a trickle of water, and they said, boil the water. And so I have my equipment here. It's hard to boil the water when you have no gas. So we'll figure it out. We use our, our camping equipment and um, our survival gear in order to do that. And then so the toxicness is yet to be determined, Larry. A lot of the groups, whether it be the Coastal Commission, the County of Santa Barbara, or even the City of Santa Barbara, uh, are going to have to review that and see what the actual casualty is. And many of the homes, like a mansion has talked about, they spent a year making it. And like these homes, Larry, a lot of the latex, formaldehyde, a lot of glues, a lot of paints, and a lot of... Of, of, um, of toxic material was made to make those homes up and down the uh, corridor where the creek is because everybody wanted to live by the creek. Many of these homes, uh, when they build this one creek just across the uh, road from us, uh, put a lot of money into it, but it got clipped. And I really don't know. It's right adjacent to the bank of the creek. I really don't know why they even gave them permission to to um, build there. The old casitas, which I call them, next to the creek were further away. My brother's house were 20 feet away from the creek. But because of the flare, when it hit the, the velocity and the force to hit the bridge, you might say it splattered and mud and debris went all over the place. And the wall, the three foot by six foot, concrete wall that my dad built in 1926 where the energy completely destroyed the wall to deflect any type of flood and that's what created the havoc of my brother and the community just west adjacent to his property so it's not that and I want to make it clear Larry a mixed, unlike 1917, uh, 1917 most of the families here were uh, Chumash and also Dalvo families, all uh, the Mex and the Soldados, Larry, were Mexican Indian people and Mexican people from Sonora and northern Mexico, where they're forced to come with the mission uh, Padres and the viceroys and the Spanish government. They were not Spanish per se, but many of them were native people. 
they formed their own community and even 1917 it was a remnant that's yet to be determined Larry you have some people even the Santa Barbara Natural History Museum that make up stories or also other individuals that make up stories um, even going way back to John P. Harrington about they look at native people as isolated and not being the resilient native people to the emergence of of people that are married to other people and that but to still keep their integrity as far as culture and as far as the people and that's what the old Spanish town is we're still functioning here um, and it's like an occupied Spanish town and uh, all these agencies and they always ask me what are you still doing here and I we given a reply. We want to keep our homes. We don't want them to condemn our little casitas. We don't want to condemn. I'll give you an example. After my son broke the window of my sister's house, which is moved 20 feet off the stilts of the house, the house was just like somebody picked it up and moved it over. He broke into the window. During that 3.30 in the morning, with the rain and the flood approaching him, went to my sister, which has mental health issues, and a 76-year-old woman got in other health issues, got her escorted out of the house, walked up the 20-foot driveway, up, and then in turn closed the door because they had still dogs inside. We didn't want to lose them. So we got outside. Six hours or thereabouts, the shirts and rescue came down the driveway, kicked the door open. They could have just turned the door and put the, uh, put the door open, like with the knob. They kicked the door open off the hinges. And what my brother and I had to do was put the door back on the hinges because we didn't want the dogs escaping the house and going into the mud and to debris and lose them. That's the kind of mentality that these people have, that they don't have any particular sense. All they have to do is turn the handles and open the door. And the same thing I said to them, my house is open. Don't kick in the door. My house is still intact. My son's house, he left the door open. Don't, the mud was not inside. Do not enter. And as well as my mother's house, where she was deceased four years ago, at 101 years of age, that my brother was living in there because if he lived in his house across the creek, which is lower elevation on the west side, he would have been swept away. We have enough sense that we're higher than the west side. He, that house is intact, and uh, we wanted them not to kick the doors down four hours later. At the same time, many as well as I would say a couple hundred people have been entering and leaving the area not knowing who they were or under about four search and rescue teams, about four different um, military or paramilitary sheriffs, that's the jurisdiction here, and from different areas. Uh, and also fire departments from different areas. We appreciated them, but we need to, they need to understand that we're the victims. We didn't create the fire. We didn't create the flood. And so you just can't look at us as territories uh, or, or trespassers in their own homes. And that's what feel, it feels like, Larry, that we are 
in house arrest at this point in time. Now, people don't have the compassion. These people, many of the officers do that we finally connect with, and then on the human level, they're wondering who we are, and some of us, some of them um, passed, let us pass to get our provisions. But most of them, like my neighbors, we have to convince them that we need food. We have to convince the, these, these individuals that we are still here. And we don't leave, Larry, because it feels like an occupied area, and they want us to leave. The assessment, Montecito Fire Department, which is they have northern, the three homes north of us, just adjacent to our property, they've been in assessment. The, um, the, and then the, the um, uh, Cal Fire did their assessment, going to home, to home, to home, each house within the affected area, which I appreciate. And then in turn, I, um, um, there was another agency that did their assessment, another agency, the sheriff, uh, sheriff, Los Angeles sheriff, that was doing the assessment of search and rescue the fourth time, and then in turn, uh, Monday is going to be a county of Santa, Bar- Santa Barbara, which is reported as doing their assessment, can do condemning homes, and my fear, Larry, my suspicion. They always wanted the old Spanish town to go away because it doesn't fit into the framework of Montecito as a luxury community. And within Montecito, there's pockets, enclaves of regular homes, casitas, where houses are still there, and it's a good reason to condemn all of us in order so they could have good real estate value so they can turn over and create more mansions next to the creek, which is the next phase of the development. We are not ignorant of the fact, and so we're staying strong. We're staying here so no one condemn our little houses that are historic, number one. And secondly, secondly, um, within the indigenous communities that are suffered through floods and, and, and suffered through floods and fires and havoc because authorities were staying strong. Um, my brother lost anything, everything that he's, um, he's going through, obviously a lot. Um, I'm trying to maintain my stability and my force worthness as far as we need people's prayers. And later on, we're going to develop GoFundMe uh, accounts. My, my son was talking about that. And also have work brigades so they can help us on the, on the days and months ahead. You're listening to an exclusive interview with Marcus Lopez Sr., a member of the Barbarino Band of the Chumash Nation, providing us an update with the impacts of the recent mudslides in the Montecito, Santa Barbara region. He and his family live at Ground Zero. And now back to the interview. In terms of erasure, I, I know with the mass media, because you brought this up earlier, uh, the mass media coverage of the impacts of the Santa Barbara mudslides um, has had a tendency or a dominant pattern of covering the wealthy elite. So we've heard stories about, you know, Oprah Winfrey, Ellen DeGeneres, Rob Lowe, Rupert Murdoch, Elon Husk, you know, all of them living up in the area and, you know, they're near strokes of, um, of potential, you know, property damage as a result of the mudslides. And, and what's absent in, in what you're articulating 
is uh, in indigenous communities that are impacted, but also just, you know, lower middle class families that have severely been impacted uh, by the mudslides. Larry, Mother Earth does not differentiate between income or class, number one. At the same time, with the same breath, Oprah Winfrey never invited me to breakfast, and we live a half a quarter of a mile from each other. And so whatever her comments are, um, I think she does the best she can. You have to, or not like the Washington, D.C. that has no heart and no compassion. You know, we still speak good of each other. Some of my Republican friends lost their lives in homes. They were middle class, nice homes, Larry. Uh, in the home that I could never afford. But I don't want to, um, uh, the direction as far as the uh, Earth Mother does not differentiate with the same breath. That's why this exclusive interview, Larry, that many of the families that lost their homes are going to be really stretched for their existence. That um, because of the homes are so old that maybe... Uh, many of the insurance companies maybe partially took care of them or maybe not, and that um, um, these areas of the enclaves of Montecito, that's why I want to give the interview because of the fact that they're not going to mention Old Spanish Town, which is the origin of Montecito. No place else was the origin even of Santa Barbara. Montecito was one of the older places that um, people, which uh, we talked about in a radio show, Larry. We talked about um, the professor uh, from East L.A., uh, Benjamin Medley. Benjamin Madley at UCLA. Talked about those seven, uh, those 10 or 11 years or whatever the case might be. Maybe I had that wrong, maybe nine years. The years after especially after the invasion where the Americans came. And the 1848, after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and uh, from that, the industrialization of the West, and particularly California, with agriculture and mining, and later on with the development of, of the railroads, and later on with the mill and mining and the industry within California and their agriculture, within that created a vacuum and a space in which I kind of say, Larry, it proletarianized indigenous people, that they were not isolated from the process of capitalism, but they were in fact part and parcel to the labor group, much like the mission system of the feudal Ecumindia Sitio system of the mission system, the Spanish system, so too the Americans brought them full-fledged capitalism and the social relations that went along with that and many of the areas, and that's why within the California coast, you don't have fairly recognized tribes because they became proletarianized and they became uh, isolated, exploited, and exterminated in one wolf might say like the, uh, you have the flood here, the mud flood, but that was a social flood of social engineering in order to eliminate the first people of California, especially within the coast from San Diego all the way to Monterey. Now within that, there's only one, there's one fairly recognized tribe, the San Inez Band of Mission Indians. That San Inez village 
was the smallest village of all the coastal Chumash villages. The larger villages got incorporated and not get recognized, and the Indian agents up and down the coast negotiated with the Interior Department and the Fort Tejon Treaty got thrown away and got thrown in then the Library Congress, which never got ratified, the treaties of 100 million acres that Greg Schaaf documented when he talked about Sinangitas and Katswa here in Hope Ranch were, were, um, uh, were Mr. Hope where Hope Ranch is a multi-million dollar real estate now, just like Montecito, connived, cheated, and chickenary efforts to swindle the native people of the village, and that was an indication of many of the villages that got eliminated within California. Fast forward to the capitalism, we can see that we, in turn, the Chumash people were very steadfast and very adaptive to be blacksmiths, to farm, farm workers, to field hands, to uh, foreigners, to uh, industrial uh, uh, masons, to blacksmiths, um, and to other industrial areas, laundromats, service sector within the richer class that came in in order to make cities the way they are. Now, within this, Larry, you have these um, between 19, 1870s to 1920s, the hidden history of Chumash as well as other indigenizations throughout this uh, coastal California, no history has been written, no adequate history has been written. And because of that, you have enclaves like the old Spanish town that no one recognizes or they make up stories. And then we are living stories of that, like the rancherias up there in the Bay Area were hard struck when the termination of the 50s eliminated them, but they fought hard to try to get recognized by the federal government. And the recognition process of the federal government, I dare to say, Larry, is a recognition is a, a recognition of extermination. It's not a recognition to recognize people, but it's a recognition how to exterminate them. You can talk to many Indian tribes and leaders and just state that. Now the, the casino tribes won't state that, but yet um, it, that, is, that is the truth as far as my calculations and my observations. Now, given that, Larry, that, um, so that probably answers your question. And um, these enclaves of Montecito, they don't tell that story. This story is that we're fighting for our little community here, and so it remains intact as much as the community can remain intact in the 21st century. Marcus, you're talking about the living history of the land that most people are unaware of and the amount of profound and systemic damage caused by the Thomas fires resulting in the massive Montecito mudslides and how it's impacting the land. And you and your family who have lived on that land since the 1800s. What about the mental health and the cultural health? Larry, it's a very important question because you're asking questions that um, no one asks, and I think it's important. And one of the Indian leaders don't even talk about. They don't talk about this. They don't talk about the past. They don't talk about capitalism. They don't talk about its its impact on Native communities and our flora and fauna. Since the Spaniards, and I'll be short on this, Larry, since the Spaniards, um, the plant life, and the grasses destroyed the natural grasses and the uh, the flora and fauna and the 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 the, um, 
habitat, if you will, Larry, mm-hmm. of the surrounding areas where not only Chumash, but many of the California Native people, with not, and we're not just talking about acorns, but all the different, hundreds of different variety of, of plant life, whether it be the coast or whether it be the mountains, um, got impacted by this foreign, intrusive, and destructive plant that they the Spaniards brought in, but also the Americans in their not wisdom of plant life uh, brought in with their development of cities uh, mimic the western cities of the east and to the mimic that effort is planning what they like within the cities in order to make them more eastern palatable rather than taking consideration many of the ecologists right now and the botanist and the herbalist are taking lessons from the native peoples and there we have some fine people speaking of the issue and where urban areas are need to plant natural indigenous plant and flora and fauna and trees, especially arbalists, to do some really interesting work within the L.A. basin, the river, and many of the creeks area. But all in all, Larry, we, cha- we see the changing feature of the, of the trees and the nature. Just down the, uh, the block, uh, it was in the Montecito Journal, a really fancy journal that talked about the neighbors planting exotic plants within the yard and they want to mimic uh, Polynesian culture and and, and um, I think it was palms and uh, ferns and whatnot that were completely not, and it took a lot of water, completely not habitable to this area. And one thing about this area, Larry, many areas of California, but specifically with Ventura, Santa Barbara, in San Luis Obispo, mainly Santa Barbara County and Ventura County, it is a multitude of range, of plant life, of geophysicalness, the spatiality of the climate and the different flora and fauna is different than any other place in a different variety of the geology and with that that any other place within the coast. We have our islands, our, our northern uh, islands off the coast of Santa Barbara that, um, that are an indication of the, uh, that in the channel that is what they say are Galapagos of the area which is the sanctuary and the national parks took it over and that's part of our islands are sacred islands that we believe uh, as part of the Rainbow Bridge story and other stories are points of origin that are sacred to us and many of the areas even north of us like what you said are sacred sites and I want to mention them because then people start looking in those our burial sites, our medicine areas, our areas in hot springs, our areas in which they privatized during the early late 1800s um, and early 1900s, they privatized and we use them as medicine. And you might say with this development, expropriation, exploitation of the social aspect of capitalism, the spatiality and the space of geography alone 
created the havoc about people could not take care of themselves, and we had to go to not only doctoring the natural element, but also rely on the Western medicine, which eliminated a lot of lives and a lot of the flus and smallpox and so on and so forth, and influenzas and, and, and whatnot, um, um, got affected by a lot of natural elements and where people got uh, healed, Larry. So... It took the ins and outs and twists and turns because people could not go to the natural elements and the flo- and the and the plant or medicines in order to cure themselves. With that, you have the the native communities did back burning, right? And we did back burning, um, and the big controversy within that. But within that, we did have, and it's been already documented, that we did have agriculture. We didn't have it like in the Western mindset, but we did have areas where we facilitated. We might say like, you know, our medicine people have already instructed us to. You sing, you pray to the to your plant life and, and, and to animal life, and which gives you peace of heart. It gives you sustainability and gives you equilibrium with your lives and synchronicity that we, we pray to them. And how can you pray to, you know, to the uh, life within the swamps and to the marshes when they're eliminated by marine, um, marine boat uh, uh, yachts, uh, um, areas, harbors, and many of the areas and marshes are eliminated um, within that. And then uh, we cannot take care of ourselves, but yet a lot of the foothills and a lot of the areas, if they did it like Native people have done it, would back burn a lot of the areas, so we won't have this havoc like we did with Major Burn. It's That area back in Montecito within Ventura hasn't burned since the Coyote Fire in 66. If we did that, you know, and a lot of, and within that, Larry, you have these nice, nice little pockets of mansions during the robber baron era and then finally during the late 60s and early 70s with the new money came in Montecito I think the 80s that new yuppie money as they say and more finance as the market and twist and turns after money the 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 uh, unlike the president administration and unlike Reagan administration that talked about it trickle down, the money is concentrated into the one or one percent. They have to do something with the money. They buy the uh, real estate, build the nice mansions, you know, for example, and I don't want to pick on her uh, because I think she's a, she's a want to do a right thing versus somebody like um, the names, the, uh, red, the orange top guy that um, Oprah, you know, she bought property which was manicured and which is not the plants that should be, not the area we should be. And that I know she inherited, I mean, she bought the property. Many of the mansion were the old robber baron mansion and one of the Chumash community. Remember, Larry, and I want to say this to people when we're talking about, you know, uh, the slave society within the South and this economy of the unlike the comments of the Washington about shithole people, the African people made this economy. And when they're called the N-word, we were called diggers, which associated with the N-word, right? right? California Indians. And because of that, us diggers were the ones that uh, were the servants and the slaves, economic slaves, wage labor slaves, Larry, if you will. 
and outright indentured servitude within the first governor called us the elimination of us, uh, that we are the remnants of the building of these areas in the cities of California. And then many do not articulate that because of the fact of reprisal, Larry, of they are, the, the reservation does not want to get their money away from the BIA, and the leadership are like the, what Fanon says, the corporador, uh, the aspect of neocolonialism and the strata of this colonialism that people want to get their crumbs and don't speak to the truth. This um, effort of, uh, of our communities, as far as changing the face of Montecito into artificial communities, is not in reference to the flora and fauna. The oak trees are still here. The eucalyptus uh, are, are not natural, but the sycamores are, and many of those trees are coming back, but because of that, you know, it's just so interesting when I've seen the landscape of just the trees now and the land, the flooded land of my brother's place and up further up north, when uh, just adjacent to the property here, the eucalyptus remained and the oaks, I mean, the eucalyptus remained, the sycamores remained, and the oak trees remained. You're listening to an exclusive interview with Marcus Lopez Sr., a member of the Barbarino Band of the Chumash Nation, providing us an update with the impacts of the recent mudslides in the Montecito Santa Barbara region. He and his family live at Ground Zero. And now back to the interview. Well, when we talk about the living history and, and spiritual well-being and cultural well-being, what does that mean for you and your family's own experiences as a result of what's happened uh, with the fires and the mudslides. Well, Larry, that is, um, what can I say? We're in a survival mode. Native people are resilient. They always have been. And the people, just like Benjamin Medley, articulated and documented, and other authors, and Jack Forbes was a real good one, Larry, you know that already, and many other people, um, too numerous to mention. Luckily there's, luckily, there's some comments on that. But yet, because of the Holocaust and because of the genocide and because of this onslaught of different systems, social systems that have impacted us, our spirituality and pockets within Chumash communities and with many Native uh, indigenous communities within California that took a hit on the fires and floods up and down the coast, that we're still here and we're resilient. We, um, we keep our essence. We keep our spirituality. We, um, and many of us are Christian, the Catholic religion, and many of us are not, like myself. And that's okay, Larry. We respect each other, and we uh, pray and use these prayers in order, in order to keep our strength, keep our health. And it's a big psychological effect in our little community, like my sons and our family, Chumash family, to check up on me, asking for any help within Santa Barbara and in Carpinteria, the Chumash families that we know. We have a little network of our own. And to what they say, Larry, is uh, Marcus and Telegram, eh? So uh, we, we communicate and we support each other, and we'll see how it goes. And I'm just uh, fearful of the authorities in which might, just like before, Larry, completely eliminate villages or enclaves of our Chumash community and 
in order to, we don't fit into their codes and all to their social designs, if you know what I mean. We are a, a, um, an exception to the rule. We're marginalized. Native people throughout the continent are always marginalized because we don't fit into the little nice little patterns of, well, you shouldn't be here. Like a lot of people that come through the rescue, the fire, the everybody, and there's been some good people, Larry, don't get me wrong, but they say you're not supposed to be here. And they've been saying that, Larry, for the, all my life. And I'm um, 68 years of age. And our family is not supposed to be here. Well, you know what? Damn it, we're here. And we're going to maintain here. And I told my children and all the other children that I do workshops with and speak to this issue about our, our Jumash past and our present because we're still a living culture, Larry. And our spirituality, we still go to these areas and there's burial sites and we still go to the springs, take a little bit of water, we trespass on private property, which once we could, as, as a kid, we could always go to free willing. They marked up and put fences within the, our mountains. They they put fences with our medicine. They put fences and with our communities. But we go through the fences. We go over the fences. We, we in turn, evade the National Padres they have, thanks to people like Pete Savala, gives us passes, so we can't afford to go back there, get our medicines, and protect our secret sites within the even national forest areas that are full of archaeological, which we call, quote-unquote, cultural resources. We do that in order to protect our areas of pictographs, of cultural resources, of burial sites, and all that that are really interconnected, Larry, to this very day. We do not separate our communities, and unlike the Interior Department and the BIA, San Inez, we do, we do not separate ourselves from San Inez and our relatives of San Inez. Many of the San Inez residents do that because they are in fear of losing their casino. That's my opinion. But down deep, they know that we're related. Whether it be in Ventura, whether it be in Malibu, whether it be in San Luis Obispo, we're all related. And all related, extended family, related with all the California Indians, and even extended within that, Canada and Mexico and Central America, South, and even the Arctic. My dad used to say that we are connected by blood. We are connected by our culture and our, and our, and our the canoe people. I'm a senior captain of the Tomo, which you know about, and the captain of the Tiot. And we always say we are connected to the, our canoe families throughout the Pacific, uh, the, uh, the Maori people, the people from what we call colonial Fiji, the people of Macronesia, Polynesia, Karakamaoes, the Northwest people, the people in Alaska, the people in Baja California, the people within all the different, the Yoruks, the, uh, the, um, the Hoopa, all those people that are connected to the water in the Pacific, Grand Pacific, are spirit, uh, water, you might say, are connected to that. And we know that already. We have those connections. So you talk about the spirituality, Larry. You're talking about our sacred spaces. And you're talking about our well-being. That's our strength. Our strength is not necessarily living the middle-class life. I am not criticizing the Native communities that do that or trying to mimic um, that lifestyle. You know, we have a lot of professionals that have that lifestyle, and they are very good people, Larry. I'm not criticizing them. But at the same time, we're very humble people. We're very modest people. We don't have a lot of 
people have the cell phones and have the tablets, right? At the same time, that's a new tool, that's a new weapon in order to express our oppression and do um, a stepping ground for that spirituality, for our liberation. And that is always our prayer. That's always our effort to uh, remain strong and uh, as a community communicate with each, uh, with each other in order to realize not only where we come from, Larry, and I think it's the most important point that with all this jibber-jabber, you know what I mean? And that is, where are we going? Native people, we have to, everybody, everybody, what I tell indigenous people, non-indigenous, you know, with our council, we, we're, we're so blessed that we get help from the seven-generation fund for indigenous peoples and organizations like that in order to help each other. The moment of silence is over. And that was Marcus Lopez Sr. from the Barbarino Band of the Chumash Nation in the heart of Montecito, California. He is living at Ground Zero, directly impacted by the recent Montecito mudslides. It destroyed several of the properties on his family's land in which his family has lived upon since the late 1800s. The family has left to rebuild with little to no financial support. Marcus spoke to us from his home without any running water, electricity, heat, or gas. For more information on how to help the Lopez family, you can go to their GoFundMe.com website and type in Lopez Family in Montecito Mudslides or visit the KPFK website and type in American Indian Airwaves. And that concludes our show for tonight here on American Indian Airwaves County Radio. A special thank you to our guest for the hour, Marcus Lopez Sr. from the Barbarino Band of the Chumash Nation. And a special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves County Radio is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Silence is over.